Amen. Well, if you would go to 1 Timothy chapter 1. Be back in 1 Timothy chapter 1. We'll finish chapter 1 this morning. 1 Timothy chapter 1, beginning in verse 18. I'll read through verse 20. Hear the word of the living God. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. And so, Father, again, as we come to this text, a very sobering text, we ask that You would be with us and help us. And we ask that Your Spirit would accomplish all of His sovereign will. In Jesus' name, Amen. Amen. Well, our topic this morning is a sobering topic. It's a topic that can be very confusing and can be very emotionally disturbing. And I know in a sermon like this, there is a great danger that already wounded sheep uh, could just become more wounded and more beat down and more despaired. Uh, I've prayed this week that that will not happen. Uh, That is not my intent to further wound Christians who struggle uh, with assurance of salvation or have an overly scrupulous conscience or anything like that. Uh, If you think you may be in that category, I want to encourage you to resist the temptation to focus inwardly and just think about yourself and introspect and receive the Word of God with eagerness. And so our topic for this, for this morning is what has come to be known as deconversion. Now, I need to pause right there because deconversion as a concept is an oxymoron because it insinuates that one can be converted and then later on not be converted. And we know that biblically that is impossible. Uh, We know that all who have had the miracle of regeneration worked in their hearts so that they see the glory of Jesus Christ, they acknowledge their sin, they call upon the name of the Lord, they cling to Him by faith, will receive Him and be converted. We know that all who confess with their mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in their heart that God raised Him from the dead because God has predestined them from the foundation of the world to become adopted as sons, none of those people will lose their conversion. They will remain unto the end. Uh, John Mark's sermon from last week was called True Conversion. And he walked us through verses 12 to 17 uh, where we see the content of the true gospel. And we know that if anyone sees the, the weight of the law bearing down on their sin, and they see that they have no hope outside of Christ, and they call upon His name and latch on to Him by faith, and receive His substitutionary atonement by faith in the finished work of Christ, they will be saved. And they will remain converted. Uh, This is what we call the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. We affirm that doctrine. We love that doctrine. 
Uh, it's clearly taught in Scripture. We're all familiar with Romans 8.30. And those whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. And no one drops out. Those who are predestined will be glorified. And so it's vitally important, brothers and sisters, to understand everything I say this morning in light of that truth. In light of that biblical teaching that no one who is truly converted can later on become unconverted. We have to keep that in our minds. Uh, they will remain until the end. We've taught much on this over the years and I simply don't have time to unpack that doctrine uh, fully uh, this morning, but we must keep it as our backdrop as we discuss this topic of deconversion. And so what do I mean by deconversion? Uh, very simply, deconversion is synonymous with apostasy. But I've chosen to use the term deconversion because it's becoming an increasingly popular term in our society. And really, it's become a term that has coined an entire movement. Uh, and you have all sorts of people uh, from once popular Christian leaders and artists to seminary professors to your normal everyday people in the pews claiming that they have deconverted, claiming that they are no longer followers of Jesus Christ. And so to say that I have deconverted is just the nicer and more acceptable way of saying I apostatized. That's the verbiage. And while our postmodern culture is very fond of redefining terms and changing terms altogether, the substance of the issue remains the same. Uh, we are talking about a situation where a person who at one time in their life professes with their mouth to know Jesus Christ and to follow Him and to love Him, but later on renounces that faith and says, I will no longer follow Jesus. I am no longer a disciple of Jesus, they make it verbally known. It's clear to all. And there are right and there are wrong ways to deal with this topic. A wrong way would be to mock and to be arrogant and to laugh and scorn at those who do this as if this could never happen to us. And that's foolish. That is utterly foolish. 1 Corinthians 10.12 Therefore let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. Romans 12.3 I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think. And so I don't want to promote a type of arrogance and pride in us that makes us all assume this could never happen to me. It could never happen to anyone I know. Let's just mock and laugh at all the people that are famous that do this. I don't want to promote that type of arrogant spirit this morning. We should be humble. We should humble ourselves before the mighty hand of God when we think about the topic of apostasy. apostasy. And we should cry out to God for mercy. However, we need to understand this and to think about it accurately. In Scripture, there seems to be two categories of false believers. Uh, the first category we see is those who actually believe that they are converted. They, they actually believe they're in the faith and they are self-deceived. Uh, we see this 
uh, category in Matthew 7, 21 to 23. These people go through life believing that they are going to heaven. Yet when they die one day and stand before the Lord, He will look at them and He will say to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. So there are people who really believe that they are Christians and they are not. Yet there is another category of false believers, those who profess faith in Jesus Christ for a time, even appearing for possibly years to bear fruit for the kingdom, to be genuine in their profession, yet they do not persevere to the end. And rather, for a variety of reasons, they come to a point where they say, I am no longer a disciple of Christ. At least according to Orthodox biblical Christianity. They may try to maintain some form of relationship to Jesus. They may have some thought about Jesus in their mind that they turn to and worship that made up Jesus. But they deny the sound faith that the Lord Jesus Christ of Scripture handed down to His apostles and who wrote in Scripture and handed down to the church. Uh, we see this category of people in John 6. Remember, after Jesus feeds the multitude and He teaches them uh, in the wilderness and, and He says all these incredible things to them. It says in verse 66, after this, many of His disciples turned back and no longer walked with Him. Disciples, those who actually followed Him, actually walked after Him, turned around and denied Him and no longer walked with Him. We see an example of this in a man named Demas in the New Testament. In Colossians 4.14 and Philemon 24, Demas seems to be Paul's friend. He seems to be Paul's companion in ministry. Uh, but by, by the time we get to 2 Timothy 4.10, Paul says that Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. And perhaps most familiar to us as we spent six years in the Gospel of John is the example of Judas and Peter. Uh, both men were disciples of Christ. Both men follow Jesus. They hear His teaching. They see His miracles. They do miracles. They both sin grievously and deny the Lord. And yet, Judas never truly repents of his sin He's overcome with worldly sorrow and he commits suicide. Peter, on the other hand, stays in there, remains in the faith, and comes back to Christ and is restored. And he goes on to live an incredibly fruitful life for the kingdom of God. And it's this category of false believers that we see in our passage this morning. Hymenaeus and Alexander at one time appeared to be genuine believers. Genuine products of the gospel. Yet Paul declares to Timothy that they are no longer and that he has in fact handed them over to Satan. He has given them over to Satan. These are the kind of people John describes in 1 John 2.19 where he says they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. And then listen, but they went out that it might become plain that they were not of us. That's what's happening when people apostatize or deconvert. They're just showing plainly what was true from the beginning. 
They're showing the world and the church they were never converted to begin with. They never truly loved Jesus. They were never truly born of God because if they were, they would have remained. But their leaving the faith makes it plain to all that they were never in the faith. This is not a phenomenon, brothers and sisters, that sprung up in our day. Uh, I've been reading Owen, John Owen, on apostasy. And he shows very convincingly that apostasy was very common even in the apostolic age when the apostles were alive. And it was prevalent all throughout the medieval church. And it was prevalent even after the Reformation. And it's prevalent in our day. And when this happens, brothers and sisters, it is devastating. It is devastating. And I'm sure most of you know, perhaps some of you have loved ones, people who are very close to you who have apostatized. And you've gone through that emotional pain and the difficulty and the confusion of looking someone who you thought would never turn away. They've, they've poured into me. They've done so much for my faith. And yet now they deny Christ. What do I do with that? It's confusing. It's, it's, it's difficult. There are few situations under the sun that are more difficult than a loved one who has followed Christ for a season yet turns and says, I will follow Him no longer. It is tragic that we live in a day where deconversion is celebrated. Uh, one is deemed by our society as being brave and authentic. Being true to your true self. Being real to come out of the closet and say, you know what? I've had all these struggles for all these years. I've been confused. I've been reading other sources. And I'm ready to say it. I don't believe in Jesus anymore. I'm not a Christian anymore. And it's celebrated. Ex-evangelicals. And there are podcasts and channels and pages and internet spaces for everybody to come together and tell their deconversion story and to give their testimony about how they turned away from Christ. And not only that, to go and evangelize others to do the same thing. And as much as we don't like talking about this, Christians have to have biblical categories for this. And we have to know about how to think about this, lest we be tempted to get swept up in all the intellectual arguments that are raised and all the discussion that's going on. We need to know how to keep ourselves from apostasy. Listen, Paul doesn't call Hymenaeus and Alexander authentic. He doesn't appreciate their rawness and their realness. we got to see this, guys. He doesn't commend them for being honest about their doubts. He doesn't excuse them. He says they've made shipwreck of their faith. With respect to their faith, they've swerved off course and crashed and made a total ruin. We've spent a good deal of time in our preaching dealing with this topic of false believers and false conversion from a theological standpoint. And so what I want to do this morning is focus on how in the process of apostasy, how and why do people apostatize? Why do they recant on their profession of faith and turn away from him? 
I want to show us from these three verses that there are two primary ways that people apostatize. They apostatize theologically and they apostatize morally. I argued a couple of weeks ago that Paul understands sound theology and moral purity to be wedded. Uh, they, they are distinct. They're not the same thing, but they are not separated. They are, they are wedded. They are collapsed together. If you have one, you should have the other. And if you compromise in one area, you will compromise in the other area. Life and doctrine are distinct, but are not separated. In the same way that Paul commands Timothy to fight for sound doctrine that accords with godliness, those who swerve from sound doctrine and swerve from godliness, from morality, make a devastating end of their faith. So let's jump into this. Verse 18, he says, This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare. So after ending the section that we studied last week where Paul erupts into this doxology of praise in verse 17, he turns the attention back to Timothy's specific situation. And so the Apostle Paul has just a few years left in his life. And so he's entrusting everything to Timothy. The teaching, the morality, the doctrine of the church. He's, he's entrusting it to Timothy to then go and teach other men. And he's entrusting him to correct those who swerve from the sound doctrine in the church. And to correct them and instruct them to get back on the right path. And if Timothy is going to remain steadfast in this calling and not become like Hymenaeus and Alexander, he is going to have to wage the good warfare. He's going to have to fight. He cannot sit back and be passive and just assume that it'll be all right at the end of his life. He cannot just let false teachers permeate the church and just assume it'll be all right. He's got to fight the good warfare. What fight are we talking about? The fight to remain in the place of belief until the end. The fight to remain in the faith. A fight to keep the faith. To remain faithful to the calling until the end. And Paul will use this metaphor again when speaking to Timothy at the end of his life. Listen to the link between fighting the fight and finishing the race in belief. These are some of Paul's last words in 2 Timothy 4, 7, and 8. He says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. So fighting the good fight and keeping the faith and finishing the race, they're all tied together. They're synonymous, you could say. The Christian life is not a life of passivity. We cannot assume, brothers and sisters, that because we decided to follow Jesus once upon a time, that we can sit back passively and be apathetic toward God, apathetic toward the Word, lazy in our devotions, lazy toward loving the body of Christ, and just assume that we will get to the end in belief. It's a fight. It's going to take warfare to hold the faith. And Paul gives Timothy the means by which he must fight. He says, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare. Uh, so apparently, God has spoken specific prophecy 
through a prophet or through Paul over Timothy and about Timothy's life, probably about a successful ministry. And so Paul is urging Timothy to wage warfare in accordance with the content of those prophecies. God spoke to you, Timothy. Fight with God's Word. Fight with the truth. Fight with the revelation. Cling to them. Remember them. Call them to mind when difficulty arises. Timothy is to find in God's Word concerning him the encouragement to rise up and face whatever challenge comes at him. Perhaps Timothy's timid disposition has caused a a lack of desire to correct false teaching in the church. Uh, Perhaps Timothy has a physical ailment. We know Paul says later on, take a little wine for thine stomach's sake. Uh, Perhaps there was a temptation for Timothy to be swept up in all the speculations and all the quarreling that Paul has warned him so strongly against. Whatever the case, Timothy is to hold fast to the true faith by fighting and waging war with the prophecies made about him. This is rich in application for us. You say, well, that was Timothy. I don't have specific prophecy about me. Timothy had God actually speaking about him and his life. I don't have that. Do you have prophetic promises spoken about you? In the exact same way that Timothy did, no. Uh, but doesn't Paul teach in 2 Corinthians 1.20, for all the promises of God find their yes in Him? That is why it is through Him that we utter our amen to God for His glory. Doesn't Peter teach in 2 Peter 1.4 that God has granted to us His precious and very great promises so that through them, so that through those promises that He's given us, He says you may become partakers of the divine nature. It's through the promises God has made about us that we become partakers of the divine nature. Brothers and sisters, if you have union with Christ, This morning, you have a whole book of prophetic revelation spoken about you because this whole book finds its fulfillment in Jesus Christ. And if you are in Jesus Christ, all the promises of God find their yes and amen in Him. And they are yours. They are yours. And you, by them, must wage the good warfare. It's no wonder Paul commands believers in Ephesians 6.17 to take up the sword of the Spirit, he says, which is the Word of God. Uh, God's Word is your artillery and through it, through using it, you will persevere until the end. When the wise of this age put forth arguments and positions that do not align with God's Word, clinging to His Word is what will keep you in belief. Uh, When your flesh wages war against your soul and you struggle in the battle against sin, clinging to the Word of God will give you the power to fight and to flee temptation. When the unexpected phone call comes, the terminal diagnosis, the car crash, you fill in the blank, clinging to the Word of God for hope will keep you from turning to other gods. It will keep you from trying to make sense of life's hardest moments in some other way that will lead to shipwreck. 
When the enemy of your soul, the devil, wages war against you, clinging to the word will enable you to rise victorious over him in Christ. And when your unwanted emotions provide a steady onslaught of accusatory thoughts, condemning thoughts, lies about who you are, the word of God will shine so that you can see there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Listen to me, brothers and sisters. No one apostatizes against their will. No one apostatizes against their will. No one who takes up the sword of the Spirit daily and wages war against the flesh. Uh, no one who, who sees this book as authoritative revelation from God will find themselves in the place of unbelief against their will. And when trials and difficulties come into their lives, so many who apostatize, move away from the Scriptures. They don't lean into the Scriptures. They move away from the Scriptures. And they try to make sense out of life through other categories, other systems of thought. And what happens? They don't place their full confidence in the promises of God. And they place their confidence elsewhere. And it's only a matter of time before they come down on the side of unbelief. But the one who clings to the Word may sin. They may experience incredible trials and difficulties. But they will hold to the faith because they are waging war with the Word. Making good warfare. Those who shipwreck their, wreck their faith cease to wage the warfare. They cease to wage the warfare. They abandon the view of the Scriptures as authoritative. They, they, they believe other arguments about the Scriptures. They exchange the truth about God's word for, a lie, word for a lie. Listen, you can listen to thousands of hours of these deconversion stories, and they're all a little bit different, but they all have this one thing in common. They abandon the orthodox view that God's Word is inspired and inerrant and authoritative. And they find a problem with the Bible. And once this has happened... Brothers and sisters, the ship is already beginning to swerve. And it's only a matter of time before it crashes. He says in verse 19, holding faith. Holding faith is the exact opposite of shipwrecking faith. Apostasy happens when one recants or denies the primary doctrines of the Christian faith. And it's really interesting that Paul names the two men that have shipwrecked their faith. And it's worth pointing out that the Bible seems to give distinctions about the differing levels of danger. Uh, if you look back at verse 3, we studied this a couple of weeks ago, uh, Paul says, charge certain persons not to teach different doctrine. Uh, so there are those people who are in the church who are deviating from the truth, and Timothy is to instruct them, but the hope is that they are still in the faith. They're still Christians. They're, they're deviating. But through instruction, they will come back and be grounded again. And he calls them certain person, persons. These men go unnamed. But Hymenaeus and Alexander are in a different category. And Paul says, I've delivered them over to Satan that they may learn not to blaspheme. Meaning they've been put out of the church. They no longer have the privilege to come to the table. They are no longer considered brothers. 
They've been excommunicated. And so why does Paul use their names? Well, because they have gone beyond deviating from sound doctrine and they have become fully heretical theologically and morally. And it's hard to know who Alexander is. There are a few Alexanders in the New Testament. It was a common name. Uh, But we do see Hymenaeus again in 2 Timothy 2, 16-19. And I want to read this because this is really, really interesting. Paul says, But avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Listen, among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth. Very similar. Swerved from the truth. And listen, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They are upsetting the faith of some. But God's firm foundation stands bearing this seal. The Lord knows who are His. And let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. So Hymenaeus evidently has rejected an essential doctrine of the Christian faith, namely the bodily resurrection of believers and the bodily second coming of Christ. Hymenaeus has become a hyper-preterist. And he's teaching that Jesus has come back in a spiritual sense, but that He's not coming back physically. Which is to deny a core tenet of the Christian faith. And not only that, he's teaching this heresy. And it says that he's upsetting the faith of some. And so Paul doesn't call everyone out over disagreeing about secondary and tertiary issues. That's not what we're talking about here. Uh, Paul calls people out because they are dangerous to the flock. Because they are teaching heresy. They have rejected the core truths of the faith and they need to be warned about. How often do people who deconvert do so because they heard someone or read in some book someone deny or reject or argue against the core doctrines of the Christian faith? Happens all the time. They heard someone raise a supposed intellectual problem with the Bible and with the the, uh, Christian faith. And so, brothers and sisters, uh, fix what I'm about to say so firmly in your conscience and so firmly in your belief system that you never turn from it. Listen, there are no legitimate problems with the Bible. There are no legitimate intellectual problems with the Bible or with the Christian faith that the Bible produces. If we understand the Christian life through a proper exegesis and hermeneutics of the Bible, proper interpretation, the worldview that we get is God's worldview. And there are no legitimate intellectual problems with it. Now, we may have intellectual struggles from our point of view because we are weak and sinful and finite. I am not saying that from our vantage point there are not real challenges. But if we could see clearly from God's vantage point, there are no legitimate intellectual problems. This is God's Word. And God is infallible. He is perfect. And if He has spoken His Word, and if the Holy Spirit has carried along the authors of this book, there are no problems with it. Fix that in your mind. Fix that in your heart. 
I'm aware that there are many alleged intellectual problems with the biblical worldview, but we must be able to stand with us utmost confidence that God's truth has been expressly revealed and maintained and kept for us through His perseverance. And even in our frailty as fallen human beings, we see dimly, but this book is God's Word and it is true. And listen, I'm not telling you to have a blind faith and to say, you know what, I I know there are problems that I have and I'm just going to be scared of them because if I go digging, I might fall away from the faith. No, no, no. If God's Word is true, He will reveal the truth to you. And we can and should know the truth. We can and should seek to have more light added to places where we struggle with doubt and confusion. But what I'm arguing is that the heart posture with which we approach those doubts and struggles and confusions and questions greatly matters. The heart posture greatly matters. We should approach our doubts and struggles from a heart posture of humility and belief uh, with with our feet planted on the side of belief that says, God, I am sinful. I'm frail. I'm fallible. I'm finite. I don't see clearly. The problem is with me. Whatever contradiction I perceive is I'm the problem. God is not the problem. The Word is not the problem. My thoughts, my judgments, my emotions, my morality are on trial. God's Word is the judge. And I have to make everything in my heart, my whole system of thought, my whole view of life, line up with it. But as soon as you reverse that, and you approach the Scriptures from a heart posture of doubt and skepticism, and you put the Scriptures on trial and make yourself the judge so that the Bible has to prove itself innocent in light of your own understanding, you've already begun to swerve. You've already begun to swerve the helm. And it's only a matter of time before the ship crashes. Because here's the thing, when we make the decision to let go of the Christian historic faith, our hearts have already become deceived. And that heart hardening process has started and it's set in so that we don't see accurately. We don't see clearly. And when we come to the Scriptures looking for intellectual problems deceived and darkened, we will find them. You'll find them. Not because they're legitimate, but you will find them. This is not being true to yourself. It's not virtuous. It's not authentic. It's damning. It's damning. Hold to the faith, brothers and sisters. Hold to the faith. Even here, though Hymenaeus and Alexander have shipwrecked their faith, there seems to be hope that even they can turn back. Paul says that they may learn not to blaspheme. That's why he handed them over. Very similar to 1 Corinthians 5 when the church was to put out the sexually immoral man. And he says, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. Why? So that his spirit may be saved in the the day of the Lord. Uh, The goal of church discipline is restoration. Uh, The goal is that when we put people out of the church through biblical church discipline, they feel the negative effects 
of being cut off from God's people, cut off from the table, cut off from the means of grace, and perhaps by God's mercy and grace, He will grant them repentance leading to life. And they will come to their senses and be restored. So let me encourage you, if you know someone who has turned from the Lord, as long as their heart is beating, there is hope. There's hope. Keep praying for them. Keep sharing the truth with them. Keep pushing back against their faulty worldview. God might grant them repentance leading to life. Now we must move on quickly because not only does some shipwreck their faith because they do not hold to the historic essential truths of the Christian faith, but some make shipwreck because they reject biblical morality for the pursuit of sin. Again, verse 19, he says, holding faith and a good conscience by rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith. And the this there most closely refers to the conscience, the good conscience. While most people who turn away from Christ do so on the ground of moral or on the ground of intellectual reasons, the overwhelming testimony of Scripture is that the people who abandon their faith do it because they love sin more than they love God. The third category of people in the Lord's parable of the sower. Mark 4, 18-19, he says, And others are the ones sown among thorns. They are those who hear the word, but the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word. And it proves unfruitful. Uh, we said earlier, Paul says that Demas is in love with the world. And so he's deserted Paul. Uh, Philippians 3.19, Paul says, For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. And listen, their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. And their glory, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. We know that Judas betrayed the Lord because he loved money more than he loved the Lord. We could give many more examples, but the point is that the Bible just doesn't speak much about people leaving the faith over intellectual and theological or intellectual reasons. Uh, the Bible speaks overwhelmingly that people who do shipwreck do it because they love the present world. They love sin. So what happens is a person gets tired of the internal struggle going on within them between sinning and obeying God. Their conscience, insofar as it is informed by Scripture, is beating down on them. It's alarming them. And they get tired of that battle. I want to sin, but my conscience says it's not all right. This is wrong. That sin, God forbids that behavior, but they want the behavior so badly that they press on in pursuit of it against the cry of their conscience. They press on even though their conscience is screaming, that's a violation of God's law. You cannot live that way. You cannot do that. And most people get so tired of feeling guilty that they have to find a way to silence their conscience. So they go and find themselves an intellectual problem with the faith. But in reality, it's a justification for engaging in behavior 
that the Bible forbids. John Piper says it soberly, but I think masterfully. He says, even though there may be real intellectual struggles, say, with the historical truthfulness of the Bible or with the justice of the ways of God, nevertheless, most shipwrecks of faith are not at root intellectual, but rather because I want what I want and Christianity is in the way. And so often, theological and intellectual swerving from the truth and the rejection of a good conscience in exchange for sin, they happen simultaneously. They're feeding off of each other. They happen together. So you have holding the faith, good, Timothy, perseverance, and then you have, on the contrary, rejecting a good conscience, bad, leads to shipwreck. And so what is a good conscience? A good conscience is a conscience that is informed by Scripture. It's morally informed by the law of God and by the law of God alone. It is bound to obey God's law. A good conscience is a conscience that is strong against legalism. It isn't bound to obey extra biblical regulations. It isn't, it is, and it is free to enjoy what Scripture has not commanded. It's not weak so that when it hears an unbiblical regulation, it's not bound to obey that. It's strong against legalism. And here's the part that's most pertinent for our discussion this morning. A good conscience is a conscience that is free from accusation. Keeping a good conscience requires maintaining a state that is void of unconfessed sin. A void of cherishing, cherishing sin or plotting sin. Void of tolerating even the slightest hint of unbiblical living. Keeping a good conscience requires maintaining a moral state that refuses, even in the slightest way, to deviate and to become okay with that deviation. Or to justify ungodly behavior. A state that refuses to allow the possibility of our hearts to become hard because we want to cherish sin or cherish an ungodly attitude. That says, I will remain pure. I will remain in line with God's Word because if I don't, my conscience is already denied. And I don't want my heart to become hard. I don't want to become deceived. I'm going to fight to maintain and refuse to tolerate any deviance morally. Patrick Fairbairn says this, a single flaw, he says a single flaw even in the conscience is fatal to the believer's security and his hardiness in the work. Nor can it be permitted to exist without gnawing like a worm at the root of faith itself. So Fairbairn is saying when you choose to, to go against your conscience, it's going to eat at your faith. It's going to hinder your work. It's going to keep you from being fruitful. Brothers and sisters, when we allow ourselves to do this, when we become okay in disobedience, content in disobedience, you will not remain neutral. You will not remain neutral. You will begin to drift. And it will negatively affect your Christian life. And what happens? We begin to justify little deviances more frequently, sleeping in and missing our devotions, 
missing church here and there, not prioritizing Christian fellowship, saying yes to entertainment options we never would have said yes to before. A little anger here, a little bitterness there, a little unforgiveness there. And and what happens is our consciences become less and less healthy until eventually there is a great moral failure or even worse, total shipwreck. Guys, we know this. The, The slow drift starts long before the crash. The great moral failure is almost always, not not always, but almost always, preceded uh, by many small decisions to go against the conscience. Sometimes over years, to live contrary to God's will and reject a good conscience. And so you might say, well, how can any of us keep a good conscience? I mean, I know my sin. How, you're sitting here, how, how, how can any of us keep a good conscience? That's a great question. And it's an answer. And the answer is of utmost importance. And I will conclude with these last few thoughts. A good conscience is a conscience that is daily pardoned in the blood of Jesus Christ. Keeping a good conscience requires daily, sometimes multiple times daily, humbling yourself before the Lord of glory and calling out upon the Lord and saying, Lord, wash me. Give me a fresh application of the blood. I've fallen short again. I've sinned again. Wash me clean, Lord, with your blood. And receiving His forgiveness by faith. Resolving to forsake those sins. And pressing on. Believing the promise of 1 John 5, 9. If we confess our sins, He is faithful to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. A good conscience is a conscience that is kept through habitual confession of sin. Habitual receiving of the blood of Christ by faith habitual repentance, and habitual pressing on in righteousness. And you might have to do that a hundred times a day. But that's how you keep a clean conscience. That's how you keep your conscience good. This is how we get into a state like Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4.4, I am not aware of anything against myself. The NIV translates it, my conscience is clear. So when we do become aware of something against ourselves, when our consciences are not clear, there's a fount of pardon waiting for us to come and receive in and be washed and cleansed. This is one of those realities about the Christian life that is very dear to me. Very dear. I don't claim to know my sin the way Paul did. Uh, But I can identify with him as we saw last week and say, I am the foremost of all sinners. I am a sinful man. No one knows my thoughts and my heart and my sin the way I do. I am a sinful man before God. And God has in His mercy taught me that there is an endless daily pardon for sin in His blood and in His atonement that He has made available to all who will come to Him in faith. It's amazing. I've struggled with the paralyzing guilt. I've struggled with the legalism. I've struggled with the apathy and the dysfunction that comes from hardening your conscience a little bit because you don't want the fight. 
I've struggled with all of that. And one of the great privileges of the Christian is that not only does Christ pardon you when you come in, but He continues to pardon you every time you come to Him. It's not like Christ just washes us when we come in and says, all right, the rest of your life is on you. I've cleaned your slate. The rest is on you. It's not how it works. Every day we can come to Him for forgiveness. All through the blood of Jesus Christ and receive ongoing pardon for sin. And not only that, but there is ongoing transformative grace, not only to be forgiven, but to put those sins to death and to repent and to fight and to be godly. I've said, I've said this before and I'll say it again here. Uh, we enter into the faith through confession and repentance and we will remain until the end through confession and repentance. So wherever you are this morning, perhaps you feel yourself drifting. Perhaps you have become okay, content with your conscience not being healthy. Come back to the Lord. Call upon Him for mercy. He will wash you in His blood. Put away your sins and press on in righteousness. If you are guilty, burdened by sin, plagued in your heart, there is a fount of pardon that is for all who will call upon His name. And He is very generous to forgive. Very generous to forgive. Amen? I want to transition us to the table uh, by pointing us back to that fundamental truth that I talked about at the beginning. If you belong to Jesus Christ, He will not let you go. He will not let you go. Uh, because Paul goes on to say, I'm not aware of anything against myself, but that's not the reason I'm acquitted. The reason I'm acquitted is because Jesus in His sacrificial atoning death provides sufficient atonement for your sins. And you can receive that. You can cling to that by faith. He will not let anyone pluck you from His hand. He will rescue you from every evil deed and bring you safely into His heavenly kingdom. To Him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Please come and enjoy the table with us. If you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ and you've been baptized, this table is for sinners. This table is for those who would confess, I only have the grace of God in Christ. I have nothing of my own. Come and enjoy with us. Take a few moments there to yourselves if you need it. Uh, pray, confess sin, renew your mind in the Gospel, and fix your gaze on the joy of the Lord. And when you're ready, come and take the elements and return to your seat and we'll take it together. Let's pray. Holy Father, we thank You that You do not leave us as orphans we thank You that You have given us Your Spirit. And we thank You, Lord, that even though our consciences are not perfect, they are not infallible, You have left us with an infallible testimony and promises to believe. And so I pray for any in this room, Lord, who are struggling with assurance of faith, that they would cling to Your promises and wage warfare with them. And we pray, Lord, for anyone who is deviating drifting from the faith that You would grant them repentance leading to life.
And help all of us to go from here, Lord, joyous and happy at all that Christ has done for us, keeping the faith, keeping a good conscience. And we ask it all by the help of Your Spirit. In Jesus' name, Amen.